Welcome to Podcetera. Each episode is a journey of discovery as we delve into topics that pique our curiosity and yours. We feature in-depth interviews with fascinating individuals who have extraordinary stories to share. I'm Renee Lego. I'm Joelle Ludovich. And this is Podcetera. Irina, thank you for joining us on Podcetera. We're so excited to have you on the show. You have a really interesting and varied background from creative writing to books, essays, academia, short stories, podcasts. Would you mind giving us the cliff notes of your biography? Well, I think that that has to begin with the fact that I've lived in five countries. So I've emigrated four times and that shapes a lot of the way that I look at the world and my curiosity about the world and about culture. But I grew up in Toronto, Canada, and I started studying literature to the disappointment of my parents who were hoping I would study medicine. But I got over that really quickly in my first year of university. And I fell in love with medieval literature in particular and went on to grad school to do that. But there was always a little bit of an itch when I was in grad school and when I started my first job and it started, I started to realize I really wanted to write more creatively as well. And that was a little over 10 years ago. And since then, I've written a memoir, uh, culture pieces, a lot of book reviews. Uh, now I'm playing around with poetry and with little experimental prose pieces. And I have to say, I've sort of shifted in terms of thinking of myself from an academic to more of a writer. Uh, although I still love academic writing, even my academic writing has become more creative and more playful in the meantime as well. Was it always your goal to be a professor? Well, I think pretty soon after I switched from pre-med to literature, I started to think about that as a possibility. And it seemed like, a, you know, I think there was a sort of hunger there just to know more. But I have to say, I knew all along how difficult the academic job market would be. You know, this was something that even 20 years ago, it was just very difficult to get a job in academe. So I went to grad school. I thought, as long as I don't go into debt, I will do this thing. And I will get five or six years where I can read what I want and learn languages and think about things. And then I might have to start all over again, and I'm okay with that. So, you know, I wanted the job, but I had, a, I think, a pretty accurate sense of how hard that would be. So a huge focus of your academic work is uh, in medieval literature. So what got you first in interested in studying it? And was it one work in particular or what sort of made you choose uh, medieval literature? Well, it was an accident. I love, I should say, I love all literature and I love literature in English and literature in other languages as well. But when I switched from pre-med to English, I thought, okay, now my degree is useless. What is the least practical course I could possibly take? There was a guy in my college who went by the nickname of Beowulf. He would wear like a horned Viking helmet. And he lent me his old English grammar that he had, you know, he had taken a course. And I thought, okay, that sounds like the most useless thing I could possibly do right now. And I, I took this course and I fell in love with the language first with old English, which is, you know, sort of what was spoken in, in England from about the seventh, well, sixth, seventh century to the 11th century. It's English before it met French. Um, so it's very Germanic. And I just, I love the strangeness of it. It was so different from anything I knew. And that's what I really liked about it, that it made me want to know more. And that's true for medieval literature more generally like it's some of the oldest literature we have but we know so little about it very often and I love that my English teacher from high school she taught me the Lord's Prayer in Middle English I remember it to this day why I have no idea that's amazing but now we're friends on Facebook it's strange how these things stick with you so you wrote an article on the medieval roots of celebrity and I thought that was an interesting take on medieval literature that I had never seen before. And I was wondering if you could tell us what the parallels are between famous people today and medieval literature. Usually when people talk about celebrity, they talk about it as being something really, really new, right? And that comes in with technology, and whether that's the printing press or, you know, cinema. I mean, cinema is supposed to have given us the stars, you know, in the golden age of Hollywood or Instagram, TikTok, you name it. But, you know, that's often how people think about it. And 
there's this other side to celebrity, which is this funny thing that we often have very emotional connections to celebrities or to famous people without knowing them personally at all. We love them. We hate them. We think we know them. We feel like we know them. You know, sometimes we feel like they know us. Like sometimes with singers, we feel like, you know, they, they're singing a particular song and they've looked right into our soul. And that's the part which I think has existed for a long time. In the Middle Ages, there's there are all kinds of things that go on that, you know, I would describe as celebrity, but they become very interested in famous people. They become very interested in famous women in particular, who, some of whom are famous for good things and some of whom are famous for bad things. And it doesn't really matter that much. And the other thing that you get in the Middle Ages is that you get what's called the cult of saints, which is that people start to, you know, in the in Western Europe, people get really into into saints and they go on pilgrimage and they feel they have a special connection with the saint. They might try to visit the relics of a particular saint, like the bones or some piece of clothing that they wore or something they'd come into contact with. And I think a lot of that cultural phenomenon is something that we see today with celebrities. So, you know, there are saintly relics, but today people also get excited about a singer's clothing that, you know, maybe like a T-shirt or something that they throw into the crowd or... Uh, you know, like Hard Rock Cafe, they'll have the sort of the guitars played by famous people and people go and look at them because it feels special to be near this object that was close to the famous person or held to the famous person. So I think it's more about that, that people were starting to have these special connections with famous people they didn't know in the Middle Ages, like that are very emotional and that feel very personal and intimate. And that is sort of the medieval version of modern celebrity. But they didn't have the media, right? They didn't have the videos. They didn't have the newspapers. They didn't have the internet. They had stories a lot of the time and paintings. Those were the things that, and little objects and things like that. That's how they got to feel like they knew these people. In preparation for the book, what's some of the research you're going to be doing or have you done? I'm looking at a lot of collections of biographies. So I'm very interested um, in that. I'm looking at a number of women who have become famous. So, you know, if you think about the Middle Ages, there are these really iconic women like Joan of Arc, Eleanor of Aquitaine. Those are the two, the two main ones that come in, uh, to mind right now, but that, you know, who become famous in their own time and also just resonate throughout the ages. They're sort of these really famous figures who, who a lot of writers and artists and so on are, are interested in. Um, Heloise, Abelard and Heloise, I've been looking at their, their story and what they wrote to each other. And, the, you know, they're supposed to be like the doomed, the doomed lovers the intellectuals, but they were both famous in their own time. And Abelard, who was Heloise's teacher, began an affair with her. <laughs> and um, eventually her uncle found out and got mad and had him castrated. So it was a doomed affair. But he, he talks about falling in love with her because he was famous and she was famous too. And that just felt right, that two famous people. They're like the Brangelina of the 12th century, you know. So it's really interesting. You see these, I mean, even the historical people, they're really interested in fame and they're really interested in reputation, I mean, gossip and uh, what people say about them. And they know that fame often doesn't have anything to do with what you actually do. And fame is unfair. So I've also been looking at just stuff written about fame specifically. What is your take on fame today and the uh, the cult of celebrity? You know, the Kardashians and uh, what is their their whole fame is built on well being famous. They're famous for being famous or famous. I would say Chris Jenner built their celebrity, if you will. But you know, a sex tape plus Chris Jenner. What do I think about the whole thing? What's your take on today's celebrity? I wish people would be as renowned for other things, you know, for doing more, po you know, positive, productive things for the world. As a scholar, I just find it really fascinating. And I find that actually not that unusual. You know, I wrote a piece about Kris Jenner being a little bit like Eleanor of Aquitaine, you know, in the Middle Ages, these medieval queens, you know, essentially were kind of businesswomen. Then they married off their daughters in order to gain territory or make diplomatic connections and so on. And they were hated and they were loved and the whole thing. Chris Jenner's a lot like that. So I think she's almost like an older type of powerful woman. I think she's kind of amazing, right? Like she, I think she's fiercely ambitious and business smart. So in that sense, I just find it really fascinating how they've gone from being really the laughing stock to being quite powerful. I teach a course on fame and celebrity in the Middle Ages and 
they were very skeptical about the whole thing. And I said to them at one point, you think we were talking about fluff, but this was a few years back. Kim Kardashian has the ear of the president of the United States of America. She can get, with a phone call, she can get access to somebody who has access to the nuclear codes. You know? <laughs> like, that's power. <laughs> that is power. There are people walking around free because of her interventions, uh, right? Like, wild, wild. So, and that president was also a reality show star, right? <laughs> like, you, we have to look at it. We have to think about it. We have to try to understand celebrity. There are people chasing fame, whatever this is. People want it. Chaucer has this book on the House of Fame where he shows how fame is, it has nothing to do with what you do, you know, and that it's not necessarily good and it, not everybody should want it or should want it. As a scholar, how do you think social media has shaped celebrity? And is there something of equal sort of value or, you know, in medieval times through your studies? Well, it's uh, the two things. One is that it's made it all feel much faster. But, you know, I would say it's always felt fast. Fame has always felt fast to people, even when they had totally different technology, because rumor goes fast, right? People talk to each other. But I think it's also made it possible for more normal people to be, to become famous in certain areas. Like when Twitter was still Twitter and still sort of functional, people could acquire a really large following without necessarily having accomplished something in particular or being someone who's well-known in some area, which is a strength It's also sometimes bad because it depends what they have to say to the world, right? But it's made it possible for more normal people to be kind of known by a lot of people around the world or in a, you know, in a certain area. That technologically, obviously, that wasn't possible in the Middle Ages. But I think you do get sort of local celebrities in any human society, people who, um, I don't know if it's the town mayor or somebody who's sort of at a university, there's certain people everybody knows. But if you stepped outside of the university, nobody would know them, right? So groups have their own sort of celebrities anyway. I guess maybe more word of mouth than, yeah. Doesn't a lot of social media actually spreads the word of mouth too? Like people send each other TikToks and they like forward each other tweets or posts or things like that. That's just rumor. That's the same thing it's always been. Like it's not all sort of the main algorithm. It also gives people recommend things to each other. Tell us a little bit about the encounters with medieval women podcast series you had with Mary Wellesley. Sure. That was a four episode series that we did two years ago where we had both fictional and real historical women. And it was just four episodes where we talked about these quite vibrant, interesting female figures. Since then, we've been doing a longer podcast series, Medieval Beginnings. Both of these are from the London Review of Books. It's like a book packet and people subscribe and get the book packet or they just listen to us. And we, you know, we sort of talk about a wide variety of medieval texts that we find fascinating and compelling and have the kind of conversation you'd have about it with a friend who's also a medievalist, you know, but not in the in as much of an academic way. We somehow wind up laughing a lot every time we record this podcast. Yeah, I've listened to your episodes and they're like quite fun and a little bit not so academic geared that you can't get involved with the conversation. Yeah, we're going to do another one next year on medieval humor, which I think is the way we see the Middle Ages, is that people imagine it was very serious and people walked around in gray whipping themselves a lot, you know, but actually <laughs> they had great, you know, sometimes awful humor, but, you know, sometimes really great humor. What are some of the other things people usually think about the Middle Ages and the medieval literature that when you walk into your class on day one that you have to dispel? They think everyone was super religious and that the church told them what they do, what to do and what to think. And they, they did and thought exactly that. So there was independent thought, which was not true at all. And they think women had absolutely no rights and were completely oppressed and were just kind of sad, staying locked in the house and not allowed to do anything. And that, that's not true either. Um, so those are some of the things that, you know, I spend some time disabusing my students of those ideas. What are some of the other courses that you teach? Right now I'm teaching a course called Beowulf and its Afterlives, where we're reading Beowulf and then we're reading all kinds of contemporary 
translations and adaptations of Beowulf or watching a movie, the Robert Zemeckis movie with Angelina Jolie, you know, sort of this like kind of coming out of a, the mirror, all kind of gold and naked, and but also poetic adaptations. Maria Davana Headley's The Mere Wife and her translation of Beowulf, which just came out in the past few years. So we sort of look at how Beowulf has been taken and adapted into all of these different forms. I haven't assigned graphic novels, but I'm going to bring some graphic novels into class and pass them around. There are lots of children's books. So, there, I mean, there's just a huge amount of stuff. And in the summer, I taught a course called Trying to be Perfect in the Middle Ages. I'm working on a book about perfectionism. People have always struggled with perfectionism and with being torn between the desire to be outstanding, the desire to be flawless, and the reality of being human. It's great because my students are often perfectionistic. They struggle with that a lot. That's the course I think I teach that has the most connection to them personally. I love the way that you maintain a connection to modern day. I don't think when I was in college, any of my courses tried to connect it to what was happening in popular culture or with me as a person or as a woman, any of it. And I love that you're constantly looking forward and backward at the same time and realizing what, what's, what was humanity going through then, what they're going through today. Is that something that you've always done? It increases with age, you know, as I'm sort of trying to think about why I teach literature. I think it's great to study in the Middle Ages for its own sake. We'll never actually get to understand anything in the past perfectly because we're modern, right? We can only understand things through our modern minds and through our personal experiences and perspectives. But I think increasingly I'm interested in reading literature you know, work the brain, exercise the brain, and become more clever about something in the past. But to see what it has to say to us, you know, it might be just how strange it is. That could be the other thing it says to us, which is already valuable because it shows there's a different way of looking at the world. There's a different way of talking about things, you know. Some of the texts I read are, are you know, I teach are awful. I don't, you know, I don't teach them that often, but sometimes I teach things which I, I find absolutely atrocious, you know, but that's also important in order to understand the world and, and also how the modern world has come about, right? We under, need to understand the history for that. Medieval literature has a lot of these moments which are very human where you get a sense of a person struggling with something. And those are the texts I tend to be drawn to and to want to teach where there's an ideal and they're not quite near the ideal and they're kind of fighting with that somehow. And Chaucer has a lot of that and Beowulf is about all of that. And actually, when you start to look at it, a lot of the literature is about people struggling with the ideals that are kind of tough to bring into their own reality. That's what appeals to me. But that's, yeah, that's a very personal, it is actually a very personal outlook. I am kind of getting a little closer to the literature. As a follow-up, would you say that that, you know, inspires you and sort of informs your scholarship and your research? Do you mean that personal connection to them or the modern? What you're reading and learning and have learned, you know, and are teaching, does that come to inform your research and your writing, obviously, your connection to it? Is that your inspiration or where do you sort of gain inspiration through those readings or... It comes from a lot of places. I think I read a lot of modern things too. I read a lot of nonfiction, but I also read fiction. I, I review a lot too. Sometimes the inspiration comes from my students, you know. So actually, the course, the Beowulf and its Afterlives course, I never taught a course like that before, but one of my students is doing a BA thesis on three modern women's versions of Beowulf. And I was like, oh, that's neat. Why not just teach that so students can have like, they can read one sort of pretty classic translation and they can, they can see all of these variations. And I've invited them to do creative final projects as well if they want to, which some of them seem excited about doing. So often the ideas for my courses come from my students, either because they ask me to teach something or they're working on something like that, or I discover something exists through them. You know, they tell me what to read. So that's that's the great part about teaching is that it kind of keeps, I don't want to say it keeps you young, but it keeps you a little more current than <laughs> Yeah, so I learned about the Last of Us HBO series from my students because they played the video game, which, you know, I'm not in tune with. So I sort of learn a lot from my students as well that way. Yeah, for sure. Irina, I first came to know your work through an article that I found on toxic academia. So what has prompted you to write that article? And was it something that you personally experienced yourself or how did that come about? Oh, yeah, it was something. It was behaviors I, I saw firsthand. Good news is I didn't see them in a lot of people. But I saw that one person can do a lot of damage. 
you know, these academic communities are so small and everybody knows each other for a long time. And one person can just really do an enormous amount of damage. So the vast majority of academics I've come into contact with are just like are really nice people who mean well and try to do their jobs and try to, you know, and are pretty friendly and, and fun to be around. But every now and then you do get one of these people who, you know, is a narcissist or, you know, is, has some kind of issues going on and they are going to involve everyone else and their issues. It was a tweet thread first and I wrote it in a white hot rage because I'd realized the extent to which institutions I'd been attached to had protected one of these people. And really knowing that the person had sexually harassed students and so on, and had um, really threatened lawsuits against people who would, against anybody sort of talking about it. So it wasn't just that they'd hired somebody knowing that, that they'd protected them, but they'd really threatened other people as well. And those were the institutions. And I thought I was really angry about that. I just wrote things I had seen firsthand, right? In a, from a few people. And I got a lot of emails and Twitter DMs and various communications from people saying, were you a fly in the wall of the rooms that I was in? Because this is exactly how I, you know, what I've experienced too. I made up a term, upward toxicity. And really I was talking about uh, a whole set of behaviors that often go together. You know, people will be abusive in very obvious ways. Sometimes it'll be something as obvious as sexual harassment, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's just making people around them feel really bad about themselves. Bullying, when they kind of turn people against each other. They sort of get a few acolytes who then they use to attack anyone who might criticize them. They might steal ideas, they might steal work. Toxic is kind of a trendy term, but you know, abusive is probably the better word. People who are abusive, and they're usually abusive in all kinds of ways at the same time. They approach everything as a fight, even when it doesn't have to be. It could just be a collaboration. Trash talk their peers in front of their students or in front of other peers in really unprofessional ways. When I came upon the article, I was going through a lot of what you're describing. So it really resonated with me, and I felt like very alone in my experience. But to find that you wrote that article like maybe not feel alone and I really appreciated you you know responding to my my um message I'm so sorry you went through that I'm sorry you connected with my piece you know <laughs> just knowing that happens so much and and why does it happen you talk about struggling with perfectionism like academics struggle with that all the time you know because you know we've come to get these these jobs that are very competitive, as you mentioned, and like then we're in an environment that people would just want to, some, not all, like you said, you know, just want to tear you down. And you like question, like, why is this? It's a, it is such a small group. And why do we do that to each other? I don't, I don't have the answer to that, but I'm just, you know, in a conversation with you, like, why does that happen? Why, why, do, why do universities spend so much time choosing and hiring the best talent, you know, and then some, and then just to get into this sort of vacuum world bubble, like you explained, or, you know, like you said earlier, and just like make it so difficult for you to attain like either promotion or whatever the case may be, or just work day to day. Well, I don't think universities are good at fostering talent. Just to take a step back. I also got letters from people who weren't in academe who said this exact thing exists in my industry too. So there's an element to which, you know, that behavior is everywhere, I think. I don't think it's like special for academe or anything like that. I think one of the things that makes it maybe a little bit worse in academe and maybe in a few other fields, like which are very specialized, is that it's very hard to get another job. My father is a mechanical engineer. You know, if things didn't go well in one company, he could get another job or another job or another job, and he didn't have to, like, move his entire family to another city or another country. You know, he could just, you know, usually in most professions or lines of work, you can, there are, like, multiple employers where you could do the same thing, right? And if you're very specialized, your only way of getting out of that really destructive environment is often just either to quit, quit your career altogether and start from scratch or to move somewhere completely different. And, you know, a lot of people don't want to do that because of various reasons, right? And I think that makes it very hard because then how do you get away? 
you know, like an academia also like puts things you're in one department and you're kind of there forever. You can't even like say, well, you know, I'm going to go into sales. I'm in like product development. But what if I just go into a totally different department and I never have to see these people again? So we kind of get stuck with each other. And I think the universities figure like the cost is too high for most of us to move. So they don't have to really like treat their people well, you know. Well, sometimes I think we are just human resources. To some places. But it's a shame because people come in with so much passion and, and energy and idealism. And they, and we're like the one, often the ones, you know, we're also teaching the young, you know. You don't want somebody who's really hurt and really dealing with a lot of things. Just oh, and having also to be in front of the classroom all the time, right? For sure. So, yeah, I think it's a mess. I don't think it's a very good way of doing things at all. Did you have blowback from that Twitter post? No, uh, I didn't. I have actually since more recently gone on the record about that person, like the well, by one of the people, the most sort of notorious one. Yeah, I think I'm the only former student who's gone on the record with my name about it. And I've also talked to his university's lawyers and as part of an investigation and the whole thing. And that was very difficult for me, but I can't say if, if I haven't had any direct blowback. I think maybe the, there were people, there are, might be people who won't invite me to things or who won't like be in contact with me or things like that. But mostly people are relieved, you know, most people, people are relieved when somebody says something. It took a lot of courage, I, I think, to put that article out there and to really get your thoughts together to write that article. No, none at all. I was so angry. <laughs> well, you know what, though? You spoke your you spoke truth to power. And for someone else who couldn't do that or didn't have that. It meant a lot to those people who couldn't do it. So it means more to them, maybe. I think it's also at that point, I wasn't ready to speak publicly about actual specifics, you know. So for me personally, I felt that I was, I was still being kind of self-protective by anonymizing everything and making it very general. You know, I think in that sense, I knew in that moment there was more courage possible. And I knew that somebody like was getting away with a lot. So that was my little inner drama. But I, I, I think it's, it is also probably not the kind of piece I would have published before I had tenure, to be fair. <laughs> For sure. So why do you think academia is so, like, protect the sort of person that's doing the abuse? Do you think they're afraid of legal action? Or why do you think that that is? I think most academics are very scared and spend most of the time being very scared. And so it actually takes very little to manipulate people into either looking the other way or doing nothing or actually supporting an abusive person. And in fact, it, the person who does it doesn't even need to have a lot of power. They just need to be aggressive enough. They need to be scary enough. I have seen this a few times at this point. You know, I've been taking notes. It does not take a lot to put everybody into a position where they think, if I play along, maybe, I mean, it's it's schoolyard bullying, right? Why do Why do kids support the bully? Because they think if they support the bully, they won't get beaten up. And they might get beaten up next time. They don't really realize that. But they think they can purchase themselves a little safety by being on the side of the, the strongest, meanest kid on the schoolyard. And exactly the same phenomenon, that's exactly what happens among grown adults, sometimes with enormous amounts of education <laughs> and with enormous amounts of job safety, where you would think they would really have the safety to say, no, I don't, I don't believe in this, or I'm not, I'm not here for this, or... Uh, this is inappropriate. But this little, I think the fear kicks in and they want to be safe. It's a lot of work to deal with an abusive person. It's a lot of paperwork. It's a lot of lawyers. It's a lot of money. That person's buddies will then be angry at you. And nobody really wants to bother with it. What that means is that the, the weakest people are sacrificed. You know, the students are sacrificed. The people without permanent jobs are sacrificed. They often leave the profession. But they've left the profession. They're never heard from again. So in terms of what the academics feel, it's fine. Do you think tenure makes this worse? I don't, actually, just because I've thought about this. I think I've seen people without even jobs terrify, <laughs> terrify the others into doing what they want. Um, I think tenure, if anything, is a protection for people who then are willing to speak out. There's certainly like a full professor has, you know, a certain kind of security and, and university protection that other people might not. But people can be abusive at every rank and even without rank. Like that manipulative psychology works no matter who's doing it, in my observation. Tenure can be great for actually empowering a few people to say, no, this is this is wrong. 
or speaking to journalists or filing complaints with the university. Tenure is very useful for that. What advice would you have for someone who's being bullied? Get away. Do everything possible to get away. I can't think of a foolproof way to handle it. Get away, and if that's not possible, try to connect with as many of the people as, as possible. Bullies can be very damaging. They can do a lot of damage, and when somebody shows some resistance or shows that they're not going to fall into line, they go after that person really, really hard. It gets worse. It gets much worse. It gets much worse. Yes. I've had, I've had workplace bullies. If you don't want that in your life, and most people don't, the best, the best way is to remove yourself from the situation. Um, and if it's not possible to remove yourself from the situation, build connections with as many people as possible so that I think as a group, you can start to kind of edge out the bully or ignore them, just kind of like cold rock them out and, and no longer do what they say. But it takes a lot of people and it takes a long time. And a lot of mental, a lot of mental energy. That could be used for better things. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're always tasked, you know, to keep up our, our research, our scholarship, teaching, our service, all these other things simultaneously while you may be experiencing this type of behavior from another colleague, which is like really, really challenging because I have gone through it myself. So it's really hard to stay positive and to keep your persona up as a professor and then out into the world and, and then silently you're suffering you know with what's happening i do think it's also important to sort of figure out can this person actually hurt me do they have real power or can they just make me feel bad which is a lot i'm not saying making you know that can be very hurtful i think that makes a bit of a difference because if they don't have real power i mean in terms of your job or your salary or whether you're pieces get published or whatever, you know, sometimes they can be ignored. And that takes an enormous amount of psychic effort. But sometimes if they don't get a reaction, they can be, if what they're after is attention or after, you know, you can sort of, some people can manage to just go around it, you know, go around the catastrophe. It depends a little bit on how much, like what kind of power they have. But it's always hard. It's hard no matter what. I have had the experience with some people who are very, very damaging on a psychological level, but don't have institutional power, that it's possible to ignore them or even to say, well, you know, I'm going to show them. I'm going to be the, I'm going to live a fantastic life and have a great career. If you don't have any allies, you have to go. I think so. I think your advice is spot on there. I've seen a lot of stuff on Twitter, actually, people talking about professors sending coursework to their students saying, hey, here's your AI coursework for the weekend. What are your thoughts on AI in the classroom? Actually, I wrote a piece on this, which was very strongly against. And I have to say, I've been talking to people from the computer sciences recently, I was talking to someone very recently who said, I don't just allow my students to use ChatGPT, I make them do it. Because in their field, a paper is just communication of information. And it's just about how, can, how you can communicate the information most clearly. And the point is like, there's the information. It's nothing to do with the expression or the process or anything like that. So I think it might depend on feel. I, you know, when he explained how he does it, I couldn't say there was something wrong about it, you know, because the point was just, you have some kind of material and you just want to get it across in a way that's very technical and very standardized. There's no personal style. There's nothing individual about it anyway, you know. So in that sense, like, why not get a computer to do it? I don't know. And then fix it or prompt it better. In what I do, it's very important for my, I think, that my students go through a process of thinking about material and trying to express themselves in language. And also to make mistakes in that process. I think the mistakes in that process are very important because that's how they learn how to use language or they get new ideas that they wouldn't have if they weren't writing. And so what I've started doing is just trying to explain to my students what I think writing papers is about, what the point of it is, and that it's not about making a product. An essay is about trying something out and telling them I'd rather see something that tries something and maybe does it imperfectly, like, you know, something original and kind of bold, but maybe maybe not not really like super polished, I will give that a better grade than I will the thing that's blend and polished. In a sense, it's good because it makes us have to think about what we're actually teaching and why we're teaching it. And I can see in certain situations, maybe AI would be good. 
I have to say everything I've ever put into it when I played with it, it just makes things up. It lies, right? It, it makes things up wholesale. It makes up bibliography. It makes up facts. So I don't know what the use of it would be, really, <laughs> the way it is right now, because it's just a kind of a, a liar and, and very bland. But, you know, we're not going to be able to prevent it completely from being used. But we couldn't perfectly prevent plagiarism either. That's been and that's been around for a long time. You can you can catch a lot, but you can't catch everything. So ultimately, I think it's going to come down to the students and what they want out of their education. Do they want the education or do they not? You know, I have colleagues who say I don't want to police my classroom. And to some extent, I don't really want to police my classroom either. I also don't want to read a computer-generated paper, but I, was, I wasn't happy reading, you know, plagiarized papers either. And I get those a lot as well. So are they going to want to learn or are they not? Are they going to be able, willing to put in the effort or are they not? That's ultimately up to them. So that's the best I have. I don't really know how it's going to work out. But I do, I worry about their ability to read and their ability to deal with the process it takes to get to the point where you can write well or where you can even understand why the things AI produces are not very good. We can talk about attention span, right? We can talk about how they engage with social media and very short content driven platforms? And then how do we get our students to engage in a more different sort of discipline in terms of thinking, in terms of reading comprehension, reading longer texts, and then writing about those texts? There's a gap there, I think. So how do we sort of bridge that gap? I do more and more in the classroom. So I'm kind of like Stone Age, you know, I make them buy actual books and I, I tell them I want you to be reading the book with a pen or a pencil in your hand, you know, marking it up. And then we do, the past few years, because, you know, Corona and online teaching just devastated their attention spans. I have them, we do a lot of reading and translation in the class. You know, if I'm teaching middle, older Middle English, we do translation. But even if it's, we're reading in, things in translation, I have them read aloud. I really get them to focus on the passage, all of them together at the same time, and we really try to go deep. And now I'm playing also with doing more writing in the class as well, because I want them to be writing, just know that they can write and that they don't need to outsource it to a machine and get them writing more often. So I have to do it in the classroom because I can't control what, I, what happens outside of my classroom. Can we talk a little bit about academia in general? <laughs> <laughs> like... I attended a, the Chronicle for Higher Education seminar for chair leadership. I was encouraged that I attend. And a lot of what academia is talking about or academics are talking about is that is academia, you think academia is failing in terms of like losing students, it's not being what it used to be and mean in terms of getting a higher education I don't think it carries the same meaning anymore. What are your thoughts about that? So first of all, I should say a lot of universities have been defunded for so long and so aggressively that we can't talk about really it being academia doing this or not doing enough of that. If you have less money, you can do less, right? Students have more needs with time, right? So the students themselves, or there's more of a consciousness of the needs they have. Maybe they don't talk about them. 30 years ago, and now we know that students have all kinds of diverse situations, you know, um, learning needs. So you need more resources for that, but a lot of universities have fewer resources. So there's that. I think there were very few places in human history where a lot of people have gotten to study things that weren't directly practical or pragmatic. And there's just been almost been a kind of weird bubble in post-war America where more people, like with the GI Bill, more people had access to study things that weren't immediately useful for society like in a really clear way. That, in terms of human history, I think is a real exception. The kinds of people who were able to study philosophy or literature or theoretical mathematics or what have you in the past, you know, were very small people and they were usually upper classes. And I think what's going to happen is the richest will still have all of the access to knowledge and access to top-notch education. And then those things will be valued again because the rich have them. Really anti-democratic move that we're seeing, I think, with defunding and also the spread of ideas that what happens inside a university is worthless and doesn't matter. And, you know, everybody should go learn, learn something really practical. I think trades are great, by the way, right? I also don't think 
everybody should go into a university when they're 18 and study something that they don't, without necessarily having an interest. Like my fantasy version is everybody would have access to college at some point in their life when they want it. And I think for a lot of young people, maybe they should do something really practical when they're coming out, become adults and earn some money and learn something practical. But I do think everybody should have access at some point in their lives. That is really, I can't blame academia for that, really. I, I think it, a lot of it has to do with an anti-democratic movement, right? Because the more people who have knowledge, the more people question things whether it's scientific knowledge or humanistic knowledge. They can follow the logic of things. They can be really engaged citizens. And that's a problem for people who would rather just amass power and money. Uh, right now, there's a lot of groups on the right who are trying to get rid of what they call woke ideology, which means that they are removing, they're banning books, they're taking away humanities classes, removing libraries, you name it. You have a collection called Roomba Under Fire. And... I took a look at the uh, the foreword that you wrote, and it feels so timely. I'm definitely going to read this collection. Can you tell us about it? It feels like it relates to not only what's happening in the U.S., but it feels also very relevant this week. Well, I was born in Romania, and I have gone back there for visits, and I heard a lot of stories from people I worked with or you know relatives and so on about censorship in Romania during the communist period. And I, at one point, I guess I was about 30, 31 or so, I, I decided to do a small research project and I read various memoirs of Romanian political prisoners. Then these were people who were in the 1950s and 60s been thrown into jail. It was almost kind of purging of the Romanian intellectual class by the newly falsely elected communist government. And they threw in literature students, literature professors, law students and professors, theologians, philosophers, historians, all kinds of people wound up in jail and some of them died there and some of them survived. But a lot of them wrote, you know, either while they were in prison or, or after or years after the fact. And sometimes the books were only published in the 1990s or they were published in France and so on. So I should say this was at a time when nobody cared about the humanities. The line then was humanities don't matter. They're completely useless. They're, you know, in a weird sort of way, when people try to ban books, it's a way of acknowledging that the books are important. The books mean something. The books are powerful. That's the first thing they go after. Yeah. And... What I saw was these people who were in really horrible circumstances and often being tortured to or under solitary confinement, you know, really being, they'd lost everything. They would turn to their, to stories, to things they had learned in school. Um, sometimes they do to recipes, you know, or to poetry or to, they taught each other languages. Some of it is very academic, but some of it is very accessible, you know, but it's, it's this, the creative and intellectual life of a human being that any human being has access to. You know, this is what they would, they would turn to and they would use it to hold on to their humanity. And that's when I realized humanity is not, it's not just a name. That's actually, that is actually what it's about. It's about our humanity. We also turn to math. Like just, I think math is also, they think through math problems or play chess. And that became really kind of a guiding light for me in terms of my own work, which made me, this is why I have such a personal relationship to it, because I think ultimately it's not about whether I can write a research essay and have it published in a good journal. It's about this resource that we all build within ourselves, which can be music. It can be a lot of things, movies, you know, the stories and ideas and language and beauty that can keep us alive. And what I said in that introduction was that tyrants are actually really in a way, they're big fans of the humanities because they know how much they matter because they try to ban them. When they ban, that's what tells you exactly what's important. That's what tells you exactly, you know, the, the tyrant knows the power of, of ideas and words. And these are the moments when that becomes clear. I wish, I wish that could be different. But what does it mean? I mean, that begs the question, like, what does it mean to take away books or to, to reduce people's ac young people's access to literature and history and philosophy? It means to leave them with fewer resources for their own lives. And obviously it also means that they will have a maybe a really limited understanding of the past or a false understanding of the past, a limited or false understanding of their own society, or even ability to make up their own mind about the, you know, the world that they live in, which is really the more important thing. But it leaves them with fewer resources for their moments of crisis, for their own, for just understanding their own life, understanding, the, do you know what I mean? Like. I think it's a crime, right? I think it's horrible to 
to deny that to people. But there is a funny thing, right? A lot of the books that were banned then sold more. And I think that has to be the push. That has to be the counter push. Anytime something, I mean, anytime something is banned, go read it. <laughs> You know, or give it to somebody. <laughs> it, yeah, it's a scary time for the world. Unfortunately, it's those people who already know about it. It's the people that don't know about it who need to read it. You wrote an article, too, about junk food. So what do you think the uh, appeal of junk food is to people? And this is sort of part of my obsession with perfection and imperfection. But I think imperfection is where we tell our stories. Perfection is really boring in a way. It's weird that we live in a time when everybody's trying to be perfect on Instagram or whatever, but there's no story to perfection. And, you know, bad food is often food that we like and nobody else does, or we like, you know, dad used to make, or, you know, it's this particular, like I had this pizza and under, like in college that a few friends and I would always order and we put on six toppings that no one else would like so that they wouldn't bother us in our dorm for slices of the pizza, but we loved it. So it kind of creates bonds between people. It's connected to memories in a weird sort of way that perfect food often isn't. It's just kind of like, okay, it was the great meal, you know? That's why I think we have a sort of personal attachment to the things that aren't ideal and, and maybe they're even a little bit naughty. Do you think like there's some comfort in that though? In that, yeah, because food is such a bonding. It's so personal and it's also a way to bond with different cultures, different people. So I'm fascinated just about junk food in general, to be honest. I don't personally eat junk food or fast food per se, but like it is something that I think that people can sort of connect with. You know, you're supposed to hate McDonald's because McDonald's is this evil corporation and, and so on. Or, you know, at least the circles I move in, everybody, if you said like, let's go for McDonald's, people would look at you funny. I had a kidney stone as a kid and I had to go to a lot of hospital visits, you know, when I was eight years old. And afterwards, I would get taken to McDonald's. You know, everything we had was home cooked. But after these like really unpleasant hospital visits, I would get McDonald's. And so for me, McDonald's is this total like special comfort thing. And I don't go there a lot, but every now and then I will go have the Big Mac and the fries and, you know, like chicken nuggets. And yeah, I think there is that sort of comfort, the sort of feeling of like, oh, okay, now I get to relax. Now I get to be sort of taken care of. Yeah, absolutely. And it's connected to your childhood. See, that's something that you remember. Yeah. We have a couple of speed round fun questions. Then we have what we call a question down the lane. Do you have any old or middle English you can recite for us, a line or two? I have a, the beginning of a, of a very summary middle English poem. I hope it's if I don't do it from memory. Sumer is equal in Ludesing cuckoo, groweth said and bloweth med, and springth the woodeno sing cuckoo. So it's a poem to cuckoo to, to sing, sing in the new summer loudly. And, you know, seeds are growing and meads are, are blowing and the woods are springing anew. Sing cuckoo. I just love this poem because it's, it's so simple and it's so sweet, but. It's a lovely address for a bird. Thank you. If you were to give somebody a starter book on medieval literature, a recommendation, what should they start with? That is a good question, but it's a hard one. I mean, I don't have a perfect answer to that because I don't think I have the sort of ideal... That would be a great thing to do, actually. <laughs> I, I think I could imagine, you know, two books I really love right now are um, Seamus Heaney's Translation of Beowulf. And I, my students tend to love it too because it's also very poetic. So it reads really, really well and you just get a sense of this whole world. So I would really recommend that. And actually Neil Gaiman has a book on a Norse myths, which I received as a gift from one of my closest friends and I read the whole thing to my son and it's really quite quite nice. And it's, it's really based in medieval texts, but he retells them in his own style. Um, so I think that'd be a, a, great, a great book to pick up as well. I love this question, asking this question just in general, but I made it specific to you. So let's just say you were going to have four guests. You can only have four guests at your dinner party. Who would be your four medieval dinner party guests? Okay, I would definitely have Chaucer because he would have a lot of stories to tell. And I'd have Boccaccio because he would also have a lot of dirty stories to tell. Very, very filthy stories. I think if we gave him enough good Italian wine. Um, 
And I would have King Alfred because I, I'm so fascinated with King Alfred. He just, the man's had health problems, possibly hemorrhoids his whole life. And yet he, you know, had to, had to lead a country and run a kind of cultural renaissance and st like fight the Vikings. And all along he's dealing with these really annoying health problems. And I think that could be really fun to talk to him. Um, and, um, and then I think, um, Cuthbert, Saint Cuthbert, who was a real person, who was just this very charismatic saint who would sort of talk to animals and the animals, like there's this one point where he goes and prays in cold water and then he comes out and the otters come out of the water and dry off his feet with their fur, you know? So he's, I, I feel like he would be the person who would keep the peace at this dinner party and be very charismatic and, and chill. That's awesome. What is your dream project? I would love to write a book about food around the world in which I travel around the world. I'm fascinated with the way that sometimes you will get a sort of a, a type of food that then is adapted to all kinds of local cultures. So you get like the doner or the maki roll or it's often some kind of carb thing that sort of keeps something in it. Um, and then lots of other cultures make their own version of it. Um, so I have this fantasy project where I go, or pizza, obviously. Pizza is a great one, right? Like, there are lots of local variations. I'm just fascinated with the ways that people make these foods their own in their own local culture and often come up with something that is completely wacky. Well, you know, Canadians invented Hawaiian pizza. They did? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. It was, it was like a Greek-Canadian or something who invented Hawaiian pizza. Um, and like, that's not something the Italians really approve of, I believe, you know, but it's kind of cool that it exists. I'm glad to live in a world that has a wine pizza in it. Um, so I, I would love to sort of like travel all over the world and eat these weird food fusions. I think that would be a lot of fun. Like dumplings. Yes. Yeah. Or empanadas, like there's different versions, like the Filipino or, you know, like, yeah. The, um... mm -hmm. Have you ever had takoyaki? I had takoyaki two days ago. I love takoyaki. <laughs> So good. I had it one time. The first time I ever had it was in Japan in Osaka at three in the morning. Oh my goodness. On a, from the street cart. It was amazing. You remember your first taco. I remember mine too. It was in Flushing, New York, and it took like 45 minutes to make. And then they blew my mind. <laughs> yeah, it's indescribable. Indescribable. So we do, Joelle and I do this segment called Whisper Down the Lane. So our last guest was an actor from Austin, Texas. His name was Heath Allen. And we asked him a question for you. So his question for you in our Whisper Down the Lane was, if you were not doing what you're doing now, what other job might you have had in an alternate time? My plan C was to be a makeup artist. I mean, I would love to be a writer, for example, you know, but that's a little kind of close and I am, I am writing. But I always had this fantasy. I used to read like Kevin O'Quinn's books when I was a teenager. I still have them. Um, I've always just found makeup so fascinating, and that was that was sort of a fantasy job that I never I never got to explore. I did a little theater makeup, but not not a lot. For our next guest, can you give us a question? What's the best piece of advice you've gotten? So our final question would be: How can people find out more about you and your work? Well, you can uh, come to my website at irinadomitrescu.com. I know that's a mouthful, but I guess it'll be it'll be linked in the show notes. And I also have a substack called The Process, which is also irinadomitrescu.substack.com, where I write about writing and creativity and living in today's age. And I also send out news about what I'm writing myself. Well, I think that's it. I really appreciate you doing the podcast, and it was wonderful to meet you and talk to you. It was my pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and share Podcetera. And be sure to follow and like the series wherever you enjoy podcasts. For Podcetera, I'm Renee Lego. And I'm Joelle Lodovich. Thanks for listening. See you next time.